If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Exodus chapter 1 as we begin our journey to freedom in the book of Exodus. And I should probably uh, point out and ask you if you've noticed where all the exit signs are in the building. We chuckle at that a little bit, but of course that would be an important thing in an emergency, wouldn't it? Indeed, government regulations tell us we've got to have exit signs. And the exit signs here were important to me about 35 years ago, standing in this very area on a Saturday night during a violent storm. It was the first time I ever preached at Sailorville Baptist Church. I was so nervous, I preached my entire message by myself right here on that Saturday night. And a big bolt of lightning happened, and everything went pitch black. I don't think those exit signs were around. If they were, they went out too. And I just fumbled my way I hit a pew, and last I checked, pews don't move. That hurt. I made my way to a wall. It was getting kind of weird. I, just, I was getting disoriented. And I finally found a glass partition through which I saw an exit sign. Let me tell you, that was the nicest thing I'd ever seen at the moment. Because it showed me the way out. The word exodus is where we get our word exit from. And so... Uh, that's what we're talking about, what it is, what is Exodus, what's it all about, what's God telling us and teaching us in this great book, and we're all about that today, this, as an introduction. United Flight 232, in 1989, would need more than an exit sign. Some of you will remember this. I was just a couple of years in the pastorate when this happened. A plane, that plane, United Flight 232, flying over Alta, Iowa, heard a huge explosion, rocked the entire plane. An engine had gone out, but there were two other engines, so not to fear, except in a freak one in a billion chance, a fragment of shrapnel from the main engine severed the entire hydraulic system in the plane. If you don't have hydraulics, you can't steer the plane. You can't break the plane when it lands. This plane was doomed at 37,000 feet, and they didn't even know it. The pilot, Al Haynes, and his two co-pilots went to work trying to... They couldn't figure out why they couldn't steer the plane. Finally, they realized there were no hydraulics. Yet in a providential move of God, there was a man in the, who was a pilot himself in the first class, just hitching a ride as pilots will do, who was a trainer. He trained pilots. That was his job, to train pilots for every conceivable emergency that could occur. So through a series of circumstances, he was whisked into the cockpit, sat between the two other pilots and one right behind him, trying to manually manipulate uh, the levers, which were never intended to be manually manipulated. The pilots had to use the power of the two engines, power up, power down, power up, power down, to cause it to turn because it wouldn't turn because there were no hydraulics. They tried to make it to Des Moines, but they realized they had to, they had to land sooner. So Sioux City, a World War II airstrip hadn't been used since then, was what they, they set their sights on. The plane was traveling down in a swirling fashion like this, not, not flipping, but just swirling in order to kind of cut the speed. The pilots were doing everything they could to get it, and then they had to keep increasing the power so the plane wouldn't go down. So when they landed, they were going 250 miles an hour. That's twice as fast as you've ever landed in an airplane. 
Oh, did I tell you it was Children's Day at United? Kids flew for a penny on that day, and it had over 100 children, four on the laps of their moms. Here is the last 10 seconds of Flight 232. Check it out. As it skidded to a halt throughout the airport, the old airport, and amongst a lot of corn, emergency, hundreds of people cons uh, just, just confronted the situation. And one eyewitness said all he saw were bodies lying everywhere. But then he saw something amazing. The bodies started to move, sit up, stand up, walk around. Now, 112 people were killed of the 296 that were aboard that day. But amazingly, 184 people walked away from that disaster. The greatest disaster in aviation history that had a miracle attached to it. In fact, one person writing about it, he didn't know whether to call it a disaster or a miracle because certainly the miracle outweighed the disaster. In the book of Exodus, you have a disaster on hand. People are dying. Babies are being thrown into the, into the water. It's a disaster, but there's also a miracle in the making. What God would do when he would show his providence, his power, his personality, his presence, his provision would be on full display in the book of Exodus as he gloriously would lead the people of Israel to freedom, worship, and service. It is the story of how God would rescue over four, uh, uh, that is over two million people from 400 years of slavery through his servant Moses. And with that, let's look at chapter 1. Here's how it starts. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt when Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the, the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Uh-oh. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built, that is, the Jews, for, for Pharaoh's uh, store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly, the Hebrew word means to, to break, means to break someone, made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work there ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew wives, one of them was named was Shiphrah and the other Puah, 
When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, she can live. But the, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're more vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, whether or not they were lying, that's a debate amongst theologians. Either way, God blesses them for this. The next verse, God dealt well with the midwives. The people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. We'll stop there. In every page of this first section of the book of Exodus, there is drama and imagery, even without Yul Brenner or Charlton Heston. <laughs> there's a villain, there's a damsel in distress, and there's a hero. The villain is Pharaoh. The damsel in distress are the people of Israel, 400 years in bondage. And the hero is Moses. Really, the real hero is God, as you'll see in a minute. Spiritually speaking, all of us were born into slavery, the slavery of sin. Even the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, he says in chapter 6, and he's speaking to Christians, he says, don't you know that to whom you yield yourselves slaves to obey, his slaves you are, whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So, as we begin this journey to freedom, what's holding? What's chaining? What's whipping you right now might not be an Egyptian taskmaster, but you know as well as anybody that it's just as real and it's just as enslaving. So it doesn't really matter whether you're addicted to sub some substance or incarcerated by pornography or imprisoned by anger or jealousy or resentment or doubt or a hundred other spiritual maladies that are out there, you know the frustration, you know the exasperation, you know the depression of always falling back into those sins. You're like a prison inmate who gets an hour of courtyard time out in the fresh air to breathe it in only to be taken back indoors to the stinky, stale dungeon of his cell. And that probably describes some of you. Would you like to be free? The power by which God in his omnipotence would free the people, his people from Egypt is the same power that will set you free. Exact same power. So we're about to journey to freedom in Exodus. If you're a Jew, this story virtually defines your existence. If you were an African-American slave, this was your story of hope, that you wrote songs about your future freedom from this saga, this drama. If you're a Christian, the story is the clearest picture of Jesus in the Old Testament 
as our lamb, our substitute, our Passover. This book in the Bible is a virtual theology of our salvation. Built off this story, you find numerous references, too many to count for this morning's intro, in building up what we believe about salvation, what it takes for God to save us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul reminds us that when Moses came down from the mountain, his face shone, he had to hide himself for his people. But we who know Jesus, we are, we are forever lit up for God. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul uses Pharaoh as an illustration of God's purposes in choosing, and yet, how man is still responsible for his unbelief. And in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews repeatedly goes back to the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, rebelling against God, rebelling against Moses, and the writer of Hebrews wants to remind us through the Holy Spirit that it's a heart issue. And so he says to you and to me, living in the New Testament, he says, today, if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your heart like they did in the rebellion. When I taught on this very passage several years ago to a bunch of collegians, there was a woman sitting there who was the daughter of the president of a Bible college and seminary. She had won national awards. She was well-known amongst the school we were in. She would come to every class I taught. She'd open her Bible and slap her own book on top of it so nobody could see, and she read the entire time, paying no attention. Her heart was far from God, and she knew it. And when I said to the class today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion, God convicted her. And she literally went to her knees, placed her faith in Christ, and she was changed. Exodus is part of a collection of Old Testament books viewed together by most Jewish people. Sometimes it's called the Torah. That's the first five or up to 24 books. The Pentateuch, which is a word which means five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's called the law, and Jesus called it Moses. So Exodus is a book worth perusing. Wouldn't you agree? So when did it take place? When did Exodus occur? We're not going to get into the weeds on this. Theologians, historians, numerologists, archaeologists, scholars disagree. All of them, if they're honest, and most of them are, conclude that they, we just don't really know for sure. But there's a couple of timestamps that kind of help us get to the approximate time that the Exodus took place. And we're going to settle on about 450 BC, give or take a few years. The children of Israel had made their way, as we just read, from the promised land down into Egypt, and they would be there for 430 years. 70 people would produce 2 million people in that time. So if Genesis tells us of the creation of the world, Exodus tells us of the creation of a nation. But it's much, much more than that. Exodus is a God-centered book. No other book in the Bible is more God-centered than the book of Exodus. You can do a character study of Moses, 
But if you did, you'd have to study the book of Exodus, and you'd find out you're really studying God, who reveals himself as the I am, who hears the cry of his people, who sends plagues and bread and water from a rock, and with his finger writes out the Ten Commandments. In this book, we'll see the providence of God. Providence is not the same as sovereignty. We love to talk about the sovereignty of God. That's his overruling of all things. But providence is God's directing of circumstances. And this is, we see this even going through the book of Genesis as God took his people of Israel through Joseph, the the son who was, his brothers were so jealous of. You remember the story, he's sold into bondage, he's down into Egypt, he eventually becomes the second in charge of all of Egypt, and through that brings his family down into Egypt during a a life-killing famine and saves them. The providence of God is even mentioned in the very first word of the book of Exodus. In Hebrew, the very first word is the word end. So he's connecting the story of Genesis and the story of Exodus. Providence has been called the hand of God in the glove of human events. And you see this leading up to it and through Exodus. We'll see this especially next week with Moses in the basket in the Nile. Just the other day, we were in a camp, and you talk about providence. We met several outstanding families. I was preaching in this camp, and this one family, outstanding, she's an attorney, he's a, he's a, he's high-profile guy. They got wonderful kids, all serving the Lord. And I said, so what's your story? She goes, well, I was an attorney, a rank unbeliever, and I I got saved uh, uh, when I was like 30 years old. I said, well, how'd you get saved? She goes, well, I was actually representing a man on death row, and he shared Christ with me. That's how I got saved. You got to be kidding me. A guy who was facing death gave life to another woman. Her whole family got saved. The providence of God. You see God's providence, we see his personality. We get, to, we get to meet God in the book of Exodus. When Moses says, who, who am I supposed to tell these people is sending me? Here's, here's what you tell them. Tell them, I am has sent you. The eternally existing one. So we get his personality and we get his power. As already mentioned, his power is on full display In the book of Exodus, that's where we see the waters parting, water coming from a rock, fire, hail, darkness, all these displays of the power of God. Here's how the psalmist put it when he was talking about delivering the people of Israel. Yet he saved them for his namesake that he might make known his mighty, say it, power, omnipotence, the same power that God demonstrates over and over again in the book of Exodus is the same power that changes your heart. And we've seen all across the landscape of Sailorville Church the demonstration of God's power in the hearts and lives of so many of you. And I was thinking about this the other day, thinking, I'd love to just start calling out several of you. So thankful for the power of God in your lives. But there's also his presence Again, we'll get to this epic event in a few weeks, Lord willing, where Moses is with God. He's so afraid about going down to Egypt, but God says, don't worry about it. I will be with you. Sounds a little bit like someone else 
who spoke 1,400 years later, was about to ascend into heaven, and he said, I am with you, what? Always to the end of the age, right? Sure enough. And then provision. God shows himself in this book as the provider, and he provides manna and meat and water and word to sustain his people. And in reality, in the providence of God, he kept these people together enslaved in Egypt so as to save them and preserve, preserve a people that would produce the Savior. Because remember what Pharaoh tried to do, just in the reading, he, he tries to kill off all the girls so that, the, so that, I'm sorry, all the boys, so that all the women can be absorbed into the community. They would lose their identity and threaten the redemption of the world through Jesus Christ. This was a satanic maneuver. But God provided for them. And the manna, which came down every day, remember that? You'll get, we'll get to that eventually, Lord willing. And it spoiled after every day, except on Fridays, which would last for two days. This miracle manna. You say, that's a cool Old Testament story. Well, really, it's a New Testament story. Because when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he said, you, you got to pray like this. Give us this day our yearly bread. Amen? Give us this day our 401k. I just thought of that. Dumb. Give us this day our say it. And you better believe it. Every single one of those Jews who heard him tell them to pray like that would have thought about the manna coming down daily. God teaching them then, God teaching them in Jesus' time, God teaching you and me now. Trust him daily. He is your provider. So it's a God-centered book. It's a Christ-centered book. Yes, this book is about Jesus. We know it because when Jesus was walking along, along with those two disciples on the Emmaus Road when he rose from the dead, he opened up the Old Testament and gave him a walk through the Old Testament. And here's what it says. And beginning with Moses, that's what Jesus called the first five books, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, read it, the things concerning himself. And so when you read 1 Corinthians 10, you discover that the rock that followed the children of Israel, the, walk, the rock that produced the water, was Christ. The one that they put to the test was Christ. The one who sent the serpents to discipline them when they rebelled was Christ. And again in chapter 3 and verse 14, when God revealed his personality, who he was, his eternal self, to Moses and said, I am is sending you to rescue my people. That's how he described himself. I am. 1,400 years later, here is the Lord Jesus debating with his enemies, with his detractors. And he says to them, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they said, what are you talking about? You're not even 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? Yeah, right. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, what? I am. And there's no wonder the very next verse says they tried to kill him. Why would they try to kill him? Because he claimed to be the one who spoke to Moses through the fire. It's a Christ-centered book and the tabernacle, he is 
the door, the one door. His cross is the altar. His presence is the light. His person is the bread. His prayers are the incense. And the mercy seat is his wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. It's all pictured in the book of Exodus. And above all, as the lamb. Adam and Eve were rescued by a lamb. Isaac, as his father wielded a knife over him, was rescued by a lamb. Israel would be rescued by a lamb. So are we rescued by the lamb. Amen? Whom John the Baptist identified, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a Christ-centered book. It's a worship-centered book. Now hang with me on this. A worship-centered book. In chapter 9, God's going to say to Moses, you go down to Pharaoh and you tell him, let my people go so that they can, what, say it, serve me. Lock in on that. All who, are tr- who truly experience salvation have been rescued from death and damnation. Do you believe that? The only logical response to anyone who's been saved is to serve the one who rescued them. Here is how Eugene Peterson puts it in this, in this 116th Psalm. What can I give back to God for the blessings he's poured out on me? I'll lift high the cup of salvation. A toast to God. I like that. I'll pray in the name of God. I'll complete what I promised God I do, and I'll, I'll do it together with his people. When they arrive at the gates of death, God welcomes those who love him. Oh God, I am here, your servant, your faithful servant. Set me free for your, say it, service. We have a collection of vision and value statements that we hold to very dearly here at Sarahville Church. One of them is the gospel. Here's what it says. The gospel, Jesus rescued me from eternal death so I will live my life on earth for him. Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't it? Sure it does. There is one of the most intriguing dialogues found anywhere in the Bible, I'm sure many of you are aware of, but I'm guessing most of you have never thought about this on it. I'm talking about when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Remember that? Several ways he's tempted, and not the least of which is Satan takes Jesus to a high place, shows him the kingdoms of the world, and says, I will give all of these to you if you'll bow down and what? Say it. Worship me. It's Jesus' response, I'm guessing most of you have never contemplated. And I'm praying this will be the most important thing many of you hear today. Jesus said to Satan, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you what? Serve. Serve. Now let me ask you a question. Did Jesus say anything about, did Satan say anything about serving him to Jesus? Go like this. No, he didn't. But Jesus knew a principle that was true then, it's true now. Whom you worship, you will serve. The one you worship, will be the one you serve. And that may be the very thing some of you need to hear this morning. You've never served the Lord. You've never had a desire to serve the Lord because you've never become a a true worshiper of the Lord. 
If you're not serving the Lord Jesus, that might be the evidence that you don't know the Lord Jesus. This is a worship-centered book. And those who worship, serve. And God said, set my people free so that they can serve me. By the way, did you know the New Testament word for serve? One of the New Testament words for service is also translated worship. Anyway, Exodus is a drama-filled book. And you could just feel that in the reading, couldn't you? Joseph's forgotten. The people are enslaved. They're ruthlessly broken down, infanticide, killing babies, and then eventually chucking them in the, in the Nile. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Think about that. Joseph literally saved this nation single-handedly, and they forgot about him. Of course, 350 years had already taken place. But that would be like you and me forgetting George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. And Joseph would not be the first or the last, that is, to be forgotten. But God wasn't about making a name for Joseph. He was about making a name for himself. It was that way then. It's that way now. God isn't trying to preserve your name. He's trying to exalt his own. And some of your lives have one drama after another. Petty little things, silly little things in your little self-centered life, and you create your own drama. Hey, why don't you enter into God's drama that makes him great instead of you? Can I get an amen? Because you're going to have drama if you walk with Jesus. But if you walk with Jesus, you can turn that drama into glory by exalting in him. It is a drama-filled book. It's also a hope-filled book. This is where we'll conclude. Four times in that chapter, the word multiplied is used. Here's one. Look at it. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said of the enemies of Rome, he said, the more you mow us down, the more numerous we grow. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church which is not surprising because God has always identified with his people, then and now. Here's Saul killing and incarcerating Christians, and Jesus meets him on that road to Damascus and says, Saul, Saul, why are you, what? Persecuting me. Jesus already died. He's already rose. He's already ascended. He's already at the right end of God. How is Saul persecuting Jesus? The answer is by persecuting his church that he identifies with. God has always done that. But in this hope-filled book, God is going to give us glimpses into his heart that you don't see anywhere else in the Bible. So again, in that epic chapter, when God meets Moses personally for the first time, he begins by telling Moses, not about Moses' people, but about his people. And I want you to stare at this verse. Here's what he said. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them. Isn't that hope? Hope for them? Hope for you and me? Because one of God's characteristics is that he is immutable. That means he doesn't mutate. He doesn't change. And aren't you glad?
God sees your hurt. He hears your cries. He knows your plight. He will come to your aid and he will deliver you from your dilemma, the greatest of which is your sins. God's hand is not so short that he can't save, Isaiah said. His ears aren't so heavy that he cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from your God. Come to him. Cry out to him. Whoever calls, cries upon the name of the Lord will be what? That's right. You'll be saved. Disaster or miracle? There is a disaster going on here. Baby's getting chucked into the Nile. But the miracle would far outweigh the disaster. Are you in? Let's pray. Father, as we begin this series in Exodus, we ask that you would cause us to get a great big picture of yourself in this God-centered, Christ-centered, worship-centered, drama-filled, and hope-filled book. Give us hope. Hear our cries. Listen to our hearts. Forgive us of our sins. And some in this room have never been forgiven. There's no evidence of salvation in their lives. And oh God, I pray that they would come to the ultimate lamb who died and rose again for them. Even the Lord Jesus, your son. And trust him today. I pray, Lord, that our people would understand that true worship will always involve service because we will serve the one that we worship. Challenge our hearts in this area. And may your son Jesus Christ, so powerfully and beautifully depicted in this book, be praised, we ask in his name. Amen.